everyone, Cassius Felagelli here, and you're listening to the Homeroom Podcast. And in this episode, we're speaking with Ridge Frank White. Ridge is an old friend, a key member of the Internet Archives, the president of the board of directors at the Ulrich and Ruth Frank Foundation, as well as a career coach. If you feel stuck in your career, I would highly recommend speaking with Ridge. We did a coaching session at the end of the episode, and it was super helpful. He operates on a sliding scale for pricing, and the first two sessions are free. He's open to conversating with listeners from this program, so please feel free to reach out to him at ridgefrankwhite at gmail.com. Contact info will be in the description of this episode. Here, we'll set the foundation for the, the discussion, but long story short, for people that don't know either of us, Ridge and I went to high school. Ridge was way smarter than me. Uh, he actually took the SAT and, yeah, gone to a good school. I stayed I in Canada. I took the SAT because I wanted to go back to the U.S., which is what we're going to be talking about here in a second. And um, Cass flatters me continually. So we'll see how many times I blush in this uh, interview. All right. Um, well, you're, you're from Atlanta. Both of your parents are professors. They're very smart people. You actually published your own paper in high school in one of the university journals. So, I mean, you're having this great time in Vancouver, Ridge. Why do you, why do you got to go back down to the U.S.? Well, so, you know, I did not want to leave Atlanta, which is not a story unique to me. Like being a nine-year-old kid, I didn't want to up and move across the continent. And, um, I mean, all the normal reasons, moving away from friends, family, and then also just the the loss of cultural context and like not being in a place that I understood. Um, so I was reluctant to go to come to Canada. And it was something that had been on my parents' minds for a while, but came very suddenly to me as a nine-year-old. Um, it was actually when Bush got elected the second time, my dad had been sort of plotting this and he was like, it's time to pull the trigger. My mom had finally found a job. And so we did it. We up and moved. So there was always a, a little bit of resentment. And I think that's part of what sparked my desire to return to the U.S. Um, was just kind of like a getting back to my roots type of thing. But as you mentioned, I didn't end up in college in Georgia or anywhere near. So it became more than just returning to where I had come from and more like, I don't know, some sort of nationalism sense of pride as an American misguided sense of pride as an American, sort of a rejection of Canada and Canadian culture. I think I did the right thing by returning to the U S but I don't know how you feel about the decision to have like attended St. George's and your college following it. But I feel like looking back, I'm not sure I would have made all the same decisions knowing what I know now. Do you consider yourself more Canadian or more American now? Certainly for the stretch of time I lived in Canada as a kid, I felt like more of an American than a Canadian. But by the time I graduated high school, I was at about 50-50 because we left when I was nine and then I went away to college when I was 17. So pretty close to half and half in each place at that point in my life. And then I spent the subsequent eight years in Colorado before uh, now, as of a year ago, moving back to Vancouver. So I think that, you know, it's been a it's been a roughly equal split up until I decide to go to college. Um, but I'm definitely feeling like more of an American, whereas I would say now, having been back in Canada for a year and my life skewing more towards the American side overall with Atlanta plus Colorado. 
I think I'm feeling more like a Canadian. And so I'd say it has less to do with kind of like where I am physically or how much time I've spent in a given place and more to do with, you know, who I can feel more closely aligns with my values or brings less judgment on me for internalizing some of that nationalism. Um, I also recently got my German citizenship. And so I'm increasingly feeling like there's a huge blessing to being stateless and not having to be nationalistic at all. I was having an argument with a Zionist last week and she was like, how can you as a Jew not describe yourself as a Zionist? And I'm like, because I just don't see how that would benefit me or the world as a whole for me to align myself with that. And I'm starting to feel more that way about every form of nationalism I have access to, that it's more of a more of a burden than a blessing. That's interesting. I mean, you are right. Like a lot of the, like there's no such thing as a, an American or there's no real such thing as a Canadian. All these things are, every everyone's different in their own way, long story short. But y- y- you go to school in Colorado and you go to a very specific liberal arts school. Uh, and I believe you study government and public policy. What was that like? Yeah, political science. So to give some context to potentially Vancouver listeners, I went to Colorado College, which is the block plan on the block plan, which is the same as Quest University here in BC. And that's kind of how I found out about it. We actually had an informational session at our high school about Quest and uh, kind of put me onto that. And yeah, I knew I wanted to study political science. So that was another major motivator was wanting to learn about US politics as opposed to learning about Canadian politics. At the time, it felt, you know, more impactful and in a very objective way, it is a much bigger pond. Though, of course, now I don't work in politics at all. And so it's been largely irrelevant to my working career, that decision to study political science, but still a, a deep interest of mine and something I think is important to learn about. I will say liberal arts education as a whole, I feel like is sort of an extension of high school in that no matter what you choose to study, whatever major you choose, you're getting a very broad education. And it's almost more about socializing you to be like a conformist member of society, or at least conformist to some sort of like liberal agenda than it is about teaching you to do a specific job. Can you unpack that a little bit? What does that mean? Well, so especially for a degree like mine, but even more so for a degree like sociology or anthropology, that at a liberal arts institution, you have a ton of different required classes across many different subjects. About a third of the curriculum was predestined, no matter what major you choose. And then the classes that you do choose within your major tend to build on each other in sort of a conceptual way rather than a literal way. Like if I had gotten a degree in physics from Colorado College, I might have a different story to tell about liberal arts education because I would have graduated with a specific skill set, which would have led me towards a specific type of employment. But when you do an arts degree at a liberal arts school, the end result is more that you are maybe an informed voter or a connoisseur of the news rather than prepared for a specific job. I think it's largely true of undergrad increasingly from every type of institution that undergraduate degrees are more and more about how to set yourself up for further specific training rather than an undergraduate degree being the 
end all be all of how to get into a given career. Like more and more specific jobs are requiring specific training. I think a lot of people are finding themselves graduated from four-year programs kind of listless without a specific uh, career path in front of them. One thing I was curious about, like when I did politics, it, it turned me on to how the rest of the world works in a way. Like I gained a huge appreciation for the fact that not everyone is like me. Did you kind of see that happening on your end as well? Yeah. And I do think learning about poli sci did help prepare me to understand the world in a lot of more meta ways. Um, because at a very high level, that is what informs, you know, the rules of our society and our lived experience is largely a reaction to the institutions set up by politics. I would agree. And I think it was really helpful. But I will also say that, like, understanding things at a macro level is almost never useful when it comes to like making money, especially early in your career. And I think largely on even through your whole career that success comes from focused, intensive work on a very well-defined and specific area. And that understanding the big picture can inform that approach in a way that's helpful and can be really beneficial, but that like understanding the big picture in and of itself does not provide a lot of value to the individual and their own life outcomes. So I guess, I guess what I'm just, I'm just trying to nuance everything you're saying with like a healthy criticism of undergrad and liberal arts education. Cause for me, it wasn't what I expected it to be going into it. Okay. So how did you expect it to be and how did it turn out? You know, I think that probably for the both of us, having gone to a university prep school for high school, college is kind of the last obligation in your life as a, as a young person. Like it's expected that you're going to graduate elementary school, obviously high school for us. And then specifically for us in our cohort, it's expected that we're going to go at least to undergrad. It's kind of like a minimum. And so because that's the end of what's expected of you, it was my expectation that post-undergrad, I'm launched as an adult. I'm off into the working world and I know what I want and I know how to do it. And I did not find that that was the case for most people in my cohort. I was an exception because I started a business while I was in school. And so I didn't really have to face that uncertainty until after selling the business, moving back from Colorado and like I finally was in the same position that a lot of my peers had been right after graduation. That's the American in you, man, starting a business in college. Yeah. Out of things that you could describe, parts of my personality you could describe as being very American, entrepreneurship is one that I'll happily cop to and that I, uh, yeah, take some pride in for myself, definitely. One other thing that I, I sort of struggled with is, you know, on one hand, you're getting this very macro level view of the world with studying politics. On the other hand, the people that are in your classes or the people that go to the school you go to are from very similar backgrounds. Like I, I'm not really, you know, I kind of sit in the middle politically, but I mean, I was shocked at how few like conservative professors there were, how few like libertarian professors there were, Marxist professors. Like they were just all slightly liberal. Yeah. Like and it didn't really deviate that much. And, and I feel like that was kind of a, a missed opportunity in a sense. 
because that's what learning that's what universities are for it's for learning all those different lenses so i think that my experience was probably a little bit more on the extreme liberal arts schools are not explicitly liberal in the sense that I think the liberalism inferred from the name liberal arts is classical liberalism, like individualism. But in effect, they are extremely liberal. And in many ways, higher education is just left-leaning overall, like you kind of mentioned. But for me, it was very much like all the stereotypes were checked. I learned about, especially coming from an all-boys school, like suit and tie, button-up thing, to a liberal arts school, it was uh, it was a bit of a culture shock, and it definitely opened my eyes to our generation's, you know, I don't want to say hippies, but counterculture movement, such that it is and was in terms of um, freedom of expression around gender, sexual identity, critical thinking around subjects like racism. And basically, every type of inequality has become very integral to what defines our generation's like changes that we're making to society. And so that definitely influenced my worldview. And I think for the best, like I think that for the most part, social progress is a good thing. And we generally tend to get better each generation as a species in terms of our life outcomes, overall happiness, how we treat each other, um, all the quality of life metrics. So I feel like it was good to open my eyes to those things. It was really good to get out of the insular bubble of St. George's machismo, you know, like going to an all boys school was not at all similar to how the world works. <laughs> the world is solidly co-ed in the modern day. And um, people don't physically fight to settle things very often. <laughs> I think that was all really good for me. Helped to socialize me, like I was saying. It really served to make me into a better member of society and more well-adapted to the modern world. Um, and that's all important things. Those things definitely correlate with career success. They just maybe don't tell you what to do with your life or help you to make money directly. I mean, how do you avoid being the victim of jumping from one bubble to another? Because I'm struggling that with that myself. Hmm. I don't think you do. I think seeking out new experiences and being interested things that are different just for the sake of their differentness. I don't know. It sounds so cliche. But in response to your initial question, like, how do you get out of a bubble? I don't think you do. I think all you really can do in life is try to experience as many different ones as possible, as many different bubbles. And then you can extrapolate from those experiences which bubbles, which cultures are going to be most likely to help facilitate whatever you want to accomplish. And then you can choose to spend your time in those bubbles. Because, yeah, I mean, there's no version of society that isn't insular, that isn't like a little bit uh, self-perpetuating or in the most crass terms, a circle jerk of some kind or another. That's just part of being human. Like we are far more likely to seek out affirmation and people to agree with us than we are to find people who don't. And it's we self-sort 
therefore very efficiently into very insular bubbles. A major thing that I've tried to do is just throw myself into situations that I kind of expect to be uncomfortable or different or that I have no context for. And in doing so, you slightly reduce the amount of time you spend talking with only people who agree with you. Again, this is an abstract macro question, but what kind of culture do you think we're living in today? Because we're living in a world where, which is less religious than, let's say, 100 years ago or 500 years ago. We have all these new morals, ethics, and virtues that come with the rise of certain technologies, whether that be social media or things like what OpenAI is doing with ChatGPT. What's your kind of take on where we're currently at? So, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, there is, in some ways, there is no answer. What kind of world do we live in? Like the current one um, and its reaction to all the ones that came previously. I think you brought up some of the most like relevant and specific points. The lack of religion is like pretty much a brand new thing for society. If you ascribe to kind of um, the the sapiens description of societal formation, this idea of like shared myths with religion being the main one pretty much underpins like our ability to interact with more than a few hundred other people whose names and faces we can remember. And so in some ways I would say it's like if you define religion broadly enough, it hasn't gone away at all. Like you could argue that money is religion, that capitalism is a type of religion. Like there's an abstract concept of value that doesn't really exist, but we've all collectively decided to buy into because it benefits, you know, the aggregate of humanity. Lots of individuals suffer, but did lots of individuals suffered under all the previous iterations of society? And this one seems to cause the least suffering of the things we've tried so far. I don't know. I like. I think the religion of the modern world is a weird one, but it's also one that, you know, it's the only one we know that we've ever known. So it's my favorite. <laughs> I think... Uh, I think another cool part about modern society is the flexibility you have to then choose your own morals after deciding that value is your religion. Value doesn't like money, capitalism doesn't really dictate a lot in terms of how you should act beyond maximize value, make the chart keep going up, make the numbers keep increasing. Um, And you can do that in so many different ways. And Whether or not you're able to do that is determined in part by whether other people agree with what you're doing. And this is actually an interesting segue. It has to do with one of the questions I ask my coachees early on in the coaching process. Um, For me, like I've defined exploration as the, the chief human trait that I think is like admirable and worth seeking to perpetuate. That to me is defined both as external and internal exploration. So external exploration would be like the literal type of exploration, planting flags, going to the bottom of the ocean, going into space. And then internal exploration is more like meditation, therapy, arguably coaching, psychedelics, 
things that cause you to understand yourself and the workings of your own mind better. So to me, that's like, that's sort of like the chief virtue of humanity. Does that, does that make it sense to you at all? The two pillars of exploration? Yeah, absolutely. Or just exploration as a virtue in the way that like piety was a virtue under past religions. I, yeah, I, th- I, th- I mean, I think it does make sense. I'll relay it back to you. The reason I see exploration as such a vital thing to a hu- human's existence is we aren't going to know all the answers. And that is a myth in and of itself. And the exploration to kind of find what is best for us, given that, again, all of us come from different cultures, different backgrounds, that, that's kind of the exploration to me. The point I was making is that like, I, it's nice that under the modern world, I had the freedom to choose that and define it as I wish. And also that you have the freedom to then interpret it in a way that is congruent, that works with what I'm saying, but doesn't, isn't totally defined in the exact same way. That's probably the best part of the modern world is that we have that freedom. But even the fact that I'm valuing the freedom comes from, you know, a certain exaltation of capitalism and the free market and like individualism and being able to define like having making your own decision self-determination as being important because that doesn't that also doesn't necessarily have to be true but it is true for our society so then within that context i get to say it's a good thing that i get to choose my own morals others might say it's a bad thing for society that there's all this individualism because some people are, you know, I have dinner with some people and they're like, the world is so messed up right now. I'm like, uh, 2000 years ago was like pretty bad too. And like, not to go that extreme to prove a point, but. That's something that people love to talk about, how things are getting worse that I just totally don't buy into. Now, there are so many problems that face our world. And the scope of some of those problems is beyond anything we've ever faced before, because there's just so many more humans. We have so much power now through science to fuck things up. But overall, people's lives have gotten better. People live longer and suffer less. There's much less violence than there was previously in history. And so like I don't buy this idea that things have descended into something worse or that there's some sort of like problem, newfound problem now with the way people treat each other and act. I think it's the opposite. I mean, I think the aggregate has just gotten better. I think you're right. People are people are nicer than ever in history, or they're more accepting of like different kinds of viewpoints. At the same time, though, if I ask myself, hey, how's it going to everyone around me or that I know, I know a lot of people that are depressed, that are anxious, that are on some form of medication yeah. to, to regulate their well-being. And I agree with you. Do we want to change that for, you know, the brutal cult-like behavior that was exhibited hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago? No, probably not. But I feel like there's a better way to, I feel like there's something missing. I kind of feel like we are genetically predestined to suffer. And this is like, I'm not an evolutionary biologist and I barely read on the subject, but it just kind of makes inherent sense to me that evolution would favor humans 
who continually challenge themselves and put themselves in tough situations and create problems to overcome. Because in creating problems, you also create the world we live in, you, you know, like you, you create infrastructure and that's appealing to potential mates that you are like, in other words, that fulfillment, contentment, being Zen or whatever is not directly conducive to having more children. And so because of that, I kind of feel like whatever space you have in your life, no matter how privileged you are and how few responsibilities you have, whatever problems remain, whether they're like the most mundane things in the world, like your hairstyle, what you're eating for dinner, they, they will grow to fill your whole space. One like fun example of this is how if you go on a vacation with the intent to relax and like, so you're not, it's not like an active vacation, then you can easily fill your whole day with just choosing what you want to eat. Like at breakfast, you're discussing lunch at lunch, you're discussing dinner. You're talking about how good it was after and beforehand. You're arguing about it with your vacation mates. That's like not a problem. All the rest of your life meals just happen. <laughs> like you decide them quickly because you don't have the space to think about it all the time, but take out every other problem in your life and you can become totally preoccupied with just choosing your meals. Now, are you happier on vacation? Yes. And part of that's probably because like it's a less stressful activity than your normal daily activities, choosing your meals. And part of it's also probably because you're just not used to having nothing going on. Like, I think that if you became permanently unemployed, went on a forever vacation, that over time, the anxiety of choosing your meals or whatever other mundane stuff, choosing your next car, deciding how you're traveling between your vacation destinations, that that stuff will kind of become as anxiety provoking as your job tasks were before that. And to a lesser extent, I feel like us as violent beings of the forest and like the the problems that come with survival, life and death situations, that we turn our modern problems into things of that scope and nature, where like your daily issues around your job and your boss being mean to you and your car breaking down and your kid like spilling their dinner all over the carpet, those issues rise to create the same emotional reactions that you would have felt being chased by a tiger or hiding from an angry pack of gorillas or not finding enough berries for the day or watching someone you love die from infection. That when that's your normal life, like wh whatever state you find yourself in becomes normalized pretty quickly. And that therefore, because we live in this time of plenty with so much access and so much privilege on average for a human being as compared to a hunter-gatherer tribe, we create, you know, depression and anxiety and whatever other internal struggles because of our lack of serious external struggles. And that's just hardwired into us. And so it's actually like the biggest demonstrator of how much we've enriched ourselves as a species that we have this epidemic of mental illness. Um, because you can even look to other you know, countries that don't have as much and 
their rates of mental illness are lower is a huge part of that because they don't have access to mental health care and they don't even understand enough to seek out help. Yes, but I think another big part is that they don't have the mental space to be depressed because they have to think about getting enough to eat and that 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 will take up their anxiety and depression, that they will be sad about eating or not eating. I mean, our life in some ways has become very enriched, but in other ways, it almost seems like the way you've described it, it kind of becomes diluted in a way. Like instead of witnessing someone die of an infection right in front of you, your entire family gathers around a hospital bed to say their final goodbyes. Well, yeah, exactly. I think I think we have diluted the human experience in some ways. And I also think that like there probably are other issues that have led to this. Like it's not as simple as saying like, oh, we have so much now that we don't that we just manifest depression. We also don't have the close knit communities that we evolved with in tribe. Um, We're so much more isolated now. So it's not as simple as saying like things have gotten better and therefore we've made them worse for ourselves. Things have changed and they have provided advantages and disadvantages to our ability to be happy. But I, I personally find that like when I am at my most anxious, I'm a person who's diagnosed with and medicated for anxiety. I find it manifests itself most when I don't have concrete things to be anxious about. Because when I do, it feels deserved. If I have a work deadline and a lot on my plate, then anxiety feels like a normal reaction to being busy. And it's almost like a driving force to get stuff done. But if I'm okay and I feel anxious, if my life circumstance is good and I feel anxious, then I'm left like, why am I feeling anxious? And that's where it starts to become more of a problem. And that's when you get diagnosed with anxiety is when your anxiety is not proportionate to the actual stressors in your life. And, and again, I mean, look, not a doctor, not a mental health expert to, to challenge some of the you know norms around depression and anxiety, because I felt these things too plenty of times in my life. Could it be the fact that you are pushing yourself so much in a certain domain that when you stop, those feelings are there regardless. Like if you're an investment banker or a trader and you're working 16 hours a day, when you leave the office, you're still going to have those feelings because it's so innate to you, that environment of high pressure, all those kinds of things. Yeah, I think it definitely could be a big part of it. I do think that there really is something to the fact that we only get diagnosed with these disorders when we don't have a, a reason or an excuse to be feeling the way that we're feeling. As you remove more and more reasons to be depressed or to be anxious, create more and more of a uh, context in which people feel like they are unduly burdened, where their amount of angst that they feel is more than like their life circumstances should provoke. At the end of the day, obviously, there is no answer. The narrative I've constructed is one that helps me to understand it and also helps me to devise strategies to avoid feeling unhappy. And so, like, therefore, it works, you know, like the the proof is in the pudding. You don't there's no such thing as a strategy to help with depression that works and that is also wrong. 
it's so subjective. It's like, if you can tell yourself a story about how depression manifests and that story helps you to avoid feeling depressed, then it's as true as it needs to be. There's a question that I just pulled up here that I've been asking other guests on the show. Um, This is kind of a thought of mine. Given the advancements that we've seen in, for example, virtual reality or augmented reality, basically the cost of changing your reality is getting cheaper and cheaper over time. And with that, I think you're going to see some really interesting ethical shifts in medicine. Like, for example, if you look at the line between treatment of medical conditions and performance enhancement, I think it's becoming increasingly blurred. And we're noticing that for everything like cosmetic surgery to, I I mean, I'm sure you know things like microdosing, for example. What's your kind of opinion on that? So I'm someone who is, in addition to anxiety, which is a more recent diagnosis, was very early in my life diagnosed with ADHD. And in large part, I think just because my dad is a psychiatrist and also kind of a stoic, and therefore the fact that I was like this completely inexhaustible ball of energy was overwhelming to him. And he wanted to figure out a diagnosis to help him contextualize my behavior. That is to say that like lots of people have ADHD. Clearly, this is something that gets talked about a lot. Is it like overdiagnosed or whatever? And then I was diagnosed early because in part my life circumstance, not just my own behavior. But in being diagnosed with ADHD, I got like a ton of advantages. I don't want to sound like a conceited asshole, but I don't think I needed to be given all these advantages to succeed in school. Some of them were probably helpful to other students, like for me to be regarded as someone with ADHD and medicated for it probably helped to avoid disrupting the classroom. So that was probably helpful for other students as a whole. But ultimately, I was being given performance-enhancing drugs for academics, in addition to the accommodations I was given, which is a whole nother story. I probably don't even want to discuss in a public venue because of how morally conflicted I feel about it. But in terms of the drugs, like I think pretty much anyone could benefit from amphetamines. And the the obvious proof for that to me is that pretty much everyone in the working world is addicted to caffeine. And that's essentially just the shittiest stimulant available. Like I don't really drink caffeine and it's not because like I don't need something to help me get going, but it's because I take Adderall, which is just better. <laughs> you know, like I think most people would choose Adderall over caffeine in a vacuum if they were just, if they'd never tried either and they're given both drugs and they're like, choose whichever one helps you stay awake and work. No one's choosing caffeine in that scenario. It, I think it was, I think it is kind of unfair. Like, I I don't know that it would hurt society for others to have access to amphetamines. Now, I know they affect me a little differently than they do other people, but I knew enough people who took, who didn't have ADD, who took amphetamines in college to cram for tests and to do big assignments that I know that it does help even like a more neurotypical person stay on task and finish things. And so like, that that is an area in which I feel... I was given a performance enhancer under the guise of a medical treatment. And that I feel almost like it should be more widely available. If it's going to be available to me, I don't see why it wouldn't be available to others. I I have one more comment, though. I want you to get your thoughts on this. Again, this is very abstract, but do we want to live in a culture where it is like acceptable to be 
jamming as many performance enhancing pills as possible. Like, do we want to let, like, do we want to live in a culture where I'm not too sure if you saw the Mark Andreessen uh, episode on Joe Rogan, but he's like, he uses the example of like marijuana. And I mean, I've smoked weed before, but like, do we want to live in a culture where, you know, 20% of the population is stoned every day? Okay. What about 30%? What about 40%? Is, is that a good outcome? Like, I don't know. I can go back to individualism on this. I, to me, this is very much a self-determination issue where, I mean, it's probably not good to be stoned every day, all day. It's probably not good to take amphetamines or drink caffeine every day. It's, it's hard to make an argument for physical dependence, habitual use of mind-altering drugs. To me, it's impossible to make an argument against their availability. And so I really think ultimately it comes down to the individual to avoid the more negative consequences. As a society, we should not be making that choice for people. We should allow them to make it for themselves. And yeah, I'm eager to live in a, that's, I mean, one of the coolest parts of our modern religion and especially the track that we're on now with Western and specifically West Coast culture that like, drugs should be available and people should be able to make their own decisions on these subjects. That's a brand new thing. And I think that uh, it's going to be for the best, but that's a guess because we've never really been there before. While there was a whole period of time where drugs weren't criminalized at that period in time, they also weren't understood. And so like the discovery of the phenomenon of addiction coincides really directly with the criminalization of, and so like, We've not lived in a world where we can have the perspective to understand addiction and also have had free access to substances. So I, I think that they, it could be really good and it will also be dangerous. And I think it's also a very different question in the U.S. versus Canada because the U.S. is a far more individualist country and critically one without healthcare infrastructure. So in the U.S., no one is picking up the bill for someone who voluntarily gets addicted to a legal substance. But in Canada, we as a society are responsible for the healthcare costs of people who make that decision. And so it becomes more complicated because it's like not only should people have access, but should we all be on the hook for them, the consequences of those decisions? I think it's easier to make the argument against free access to drugs when you don't have to deal with the repercussions in the same way, financially, at least from a political perspective. Now, from a moral perspective, like I am of the belief that like, you know, healthcare should be provided and that drugs should also be available. And so it's, it's hard to then reconcile those things. Cause I would consider myself in some ways a libertarian, but obviously like, as a semi-proud Canadian, there's a lot of conflict. <laughs> it's a tough uh, situation. I mean, and and then there's the whole other component of labs in China, for example, create like creating new recreational drugs. And that becomes a whole debate in and of itself. I love that you brought this up. And I'm so eager to get a chance to voice this opinion to the world, because I think there's a really deep irony in China's fentanyl labs. I think that it's this is karmic retribution for the opium wars. We, as in Western society, as in British white people, 
got China addicted to opium for their financial benefit and leveraged it hard. And it had enormous effects in Chinese society. And now China produces all of the fentanyl that is causing these problems, causing the fentanyl crisis. And the general domestic policy in China now is you can make drugs as long as they're not being used domestically. So I feel like it's like this beautiful comeuppance for China to be in this position of providing fentanyl to the Western world. And that as much as I am opposed to the proliferation of fentanyl, that there is something equitable in their ability to now do this so many years later. Hopefully that gets clipped. I think that's, that's a, one of my favorite. Politics. Dude, I think that's a great observation. I, I mean, I, I'm reminded of the quote, like there's far more money in treating a disease than curing it. Part of me actually wonders, mm-hmm. like, do the people that actually pull the strings in our world, do they really want this to happen? And this kind of reminds me that I'm in the Bay Area, the San Francisco homelessness crisis. Let's use Vancouver, for example. Like if Vancouver becomes super shitty, like all of Vancouver, but Point Grey Road stays the same way, Point Grey Road, by definition, will become more valuable because everything else around it is crappier. I I think you brought up a lot of interesting issues there. I am getting into real estate as a major aspect of my business and my life. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about some of these macro effects. To me, the main driver of real estate prices and the main thing underpinning real estate as a good investment is human population growth. And there's all these fairly credible estimates that we're going to reach a peak population. And with immigration and stuff, we should continue to have more people in the Western world for the foreseeable future but not forever. And so it's like, how is that going to affect real estate as an investment? And how is that going to affect the moral crisis of homelessness in the Western world where there is so, so much, so, so much plenty of resources. And I think that the, the answer is that we're likely to continue to have people who want to be in places where they cannot afford to be but that if there is more supply of housing in less desirable places at a certain point, I think we're going to see some self-sorting. And while people will continue, like, I think to answer your question a different way, I don't think there's any world in which a major metropolitan city gets shittier everywhere, but one place. And that the function of having a lot of homeless people is a function of the desirability of living somewhere that people want to be there whether or not they can afford it. In terms of, is there like actual, an impetus on behalf of elites to fix homelessness? Yes. However, I don't think that there is really like a fix for homelessness beyond turning housing into something other than a commodity. And I don't think that the same people make money from providing services to the homeless, i.e. treating the problem, as would make money from the solution, i.e. making more low-cost housing. So unlike a f- like in the example that you gave, I think the common like stereotypical 
Example would be like a pharmaceutical company working on a palliative treatment rather than a cure because they can sell the treatment over and over again. They can only sell a cure once. I don't think it's the same company that does both things when it comes to homeless. I also think that the issue of homelessness is more an issue of the other things we've been talking about, mental health and drugs, than it is an issue of housing supply. I actually spoke with someone yesterday. It's not like a a common theme for me, but a homeless guy tried to sell me his necklace and we chatted for like an hour. And it's the same thing that I usually hear from people in that situation. They, uh, they had a, a run of awful, terrible luck or trauma or however you want to put it, like bad things happened to them and they gave up. That's not something that can be solved by building more houses, you know? I don't know what the solution is, but I, I kind of feel like our ability to address the problem has a lot more to do with how we structure our society and how we talk about mental health issues and addiction than it has to do with shelters and affordable housing and food banks and um, soup kitchens. Like, yeah, let me ask you this. If you were, if you yeah. were king of the world, emperor of the world, how would, how would you like even at a more micro level, like let's say you're, you know, mayor of Vancouver, premier of BC, like how would you think about restructuring certain things? I guess I would apply my my one virtue, right? I'd be like these people need to explore internally more. So I would focus on making accessible self-aware, smart people to talk to them. And I I hesitate to even say like therapists or social workers or whatever, because I I feel like that matters a lot less than just like almost what you need is like a motivational speakers more so than social workers or therapists or anything. Because the, the fundamental issue, the first issue is a framing issue for them in understanding that there is a path out of the situation they find themselves in. And then you have to create that path because I don't think that does really exist now. Not to like, I'm not trying to imply that someone could talk someone else out of homelessness. With the world set up as it is now, that path back to being a more of a like an economically contributing member of society is extremely difficult. But the initial thing that needs to happen is that reframing and convincing people that there is a way out and then guiding them on that way out. And then beyond that, there is a subsection. I'm not going to say it's it's all or even most of homeless people, but there is a subset of homeless people who are not going to accept any of the help and don't want to be helped. And for those people, there there is no real answer. Society has failed them. That's just something that no one wants to accept. People are like so reluctant to internalize the idea that like this world doesn't work for everyone. The The structures we've created are good, but they are not one size fits all. And there's a whole subset of people who are never going to fit in. We can continue to try to iterate society so that more and more people are included, but it's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be some people left behind. And that's just an awful thing to confront. No one wants to confront that. So I don't think there is an answer for those people. I think baked into all societies is a necessity of human suffering at some level.
because we have to make decisions and decisions are trade-offs and someone is on the losing end. So when it comes to like empathy bonds in our society today, it really does feel like our empathy bonds are getting more aligned based on interests as opposed to geographies. Like you could have been the outcast in your small town 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Now you might be online on Reddit or Facebook in a particular group of some kind. I, I think a lot of people are happier because of it, but I think a lot of people are, you know, you're seeing what happens on Instagram as a result. A lot of people are more anxious and more depressed. There's platforms like TikTok. Could you make the argument that the TikTok algorithm is steering people towards destructive behaviors? Again, I don't know, but something worth investigating. Well, I think a, a really interesting example of this is 4chan because it's an old social media. It correlates with some of the most antisocial and negative behaviors that exist. Like they had a lot to do with the sort of social manipulation around Trump's election victory and around the narratives that supported that. You know, they invented QAnon. I mean, they invented someone decided to name themselves that and post it on 4chan. They have some pretty direct links to a lot of school shooters. And there is no algorithm. It literally is just the most basic type of image board. Like a post bumps your thread back to the top. And when people stop engaging with your content, it disappears forever. There's no archive. Well, there there can be depending. But for the most part, the idea is that like, you know, it's without much... Uh, moderation either algorithmically or actually by people but these are people who probably would have felt extremely isolated without 4chan and so it, it also does provide community to the vast majority of members the vast majority of members are not inciting hatred or planning mass murder i think it, the reason i brought it up though as an example is because i feel like it's more extreme than those other ones in terms of the actual effects on our world that we can see and it's unique in not having an algorithm i think people like to blame the algorithm a lot but a huge part of it is just like you said people forming empathy bonds over the wrong things forming empathy bonds over hating jews or believing that hillary clinton is a pedophile <laughs> i mean it's all just so insane like if you look at the actual Q drops, the QAnon posts, they are unhinged. They're like the worst image edit you could imagine. Bunch of like disconnected clip art, clearly made in MS Paint. And then it somehow trickles down into like our senators, like saying stuff that, you know, aligns with it. Part of, I think, why it was so successful is that it was so vague. It allowed people to kind of read whatever they wanted into it and put their own narratives onto things. But it's just ridiculous to think that like a huge subset of people made decisions in part as a result of some like misanthrope neck beard posting on 4chan pretending to be a government insider. What what was it again? It was the claim was that Hillary Clinton was using like a New Jersey pizza restaurant. As oh, yeah. So that's Pizzagate. I mean, there's so many things within this. But yeah, Pizzagate was the idea that like, I think it was in DC, actually, it doesn't matter. A specific <laughs> pizzeria had a child sex ring running in the basement. 
there was it, it's tied in with the adrenochrome conspiracy. Are you familiar with that? No, you gotta tell me. So this is the idea that the the liberal elite breed and harvest adrenochrome, which is a chemical secreted in children's spines. I'm pretty sure it just doesn't exist, like no basis in reality at all. <laughs> and that they like drink it and it like make furthers their power and stuff. And so this is like pretty widely believed some form of this adrenochrome conspiracy. You'd be surprised how many people believe some form of it. Um, but anyway, this specific pizzeria was alleged as being like a part of it and that in their basement they were they were doing this process. So this guy shows up at the pizzeria, I think with like an assault rifle and it's like screaming and stuff. And then realizes that there is no basement. This pizzeria doesn't have a basement and it <laughs> turns himself into the cops and is like, I don't know how it got this far. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. So yeah, it's a, it's a good example of a funny manifestation of these beliefs, but the reality is that we see a lot of real manifestations of these beliefs in the election of people like Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, etc. The conservatives have the same narrative around the liberals and the squad, and well, it's not the same narrative, but they, they you know, have their own relevant criticisms of the memes and social dynamics that got some of the most left-wing people elected. Now, like my personal politics are definitely a lot closer to that than they are to the QAnon people, but these sorts of weird social dynamics affect our politics and therefore our real world more than I think we want. But I don't think that's unique or new to the modern world. It's just social media creates like a way for, like you said, people who might not have connected before to share these ideas. But I mean, like, if you look at the electioneering around early American elections, like people were saying crazy shit about the candidates. A lot of the populace didn't even read at that point. So there was a lot more freedom to just make shit up and there was no like checking it. So at least now, like theoretically, at least you can Google and look at several other sources. The thing is, most people just are not going to do that ever, period. It's nothing to do with being in the modern world. They're just going to accept what's told to them or they're not even going to accept what's told to them. They're going to accept and internalize very specifically the things that further the opinions they had before they started having the conversation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So th- this very, we'll, we'll jump off this cue it on topic very quickly, shortly. Um, but what did, uh, do you, do you think there's almost a longing for that? Because we, we've we kind of been talking about how some of our, you know, social structures have been diluted over time. Empathy bonds are changing. Yeah. Do you think there's almost this kind of deep down longing to be part of these like, you know, almost like cult-like groups where they just exude these crazy beliefs and those crazy beliefs further glue the group together? And as a result, they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, which at the end of the day, isn't that what we're all trying to do? Like we want to be part of something that we feel we're contributing to that's beyond just a single person. Yeah, I think um, this kind of goes back. This is a nice full circle moment for us because we started out talking about how kind of, you know, lack of community is a part of the, the mental health crisis and how we don't have the type of social bonds that we are evolved to live with. Um, 
And so we'll take these types of like poor substitutes for close-knit family groups and community. Yeah, to feel a sense of belonging and a sense of a oneness, 100%. I like like the idea of a cult because ultimately it's a close-knit community. Like if you could sell me on a cult as long as it aligned with my beliefs, my pre-existing beliefs, because it's like, oh, there's a bunch of other people who like, love the same stuff I love and want to hang out all the time. Like, great. Yeah, I'm so up. lonely <laughs> in my apartment with my dog in the modern world, talking to people over zoom. Like, <laughs> yes, I'll go live your agrarian paradise life. Even if it means believing that all the members of the UN have a slug in their lower intestine that controls them. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I think, uh, I'm curious to know, what do you, how do you scratch that itch? Because for me, like part of it is hanging out with friends and like, you know, having deep and fulfilling relationships um, with, with the people around me. And part of it is doing some shared events. Like I get a really good community hit from, um, where like everyone is the fan of the, the artist and they're dancing and yelling together. I feel like dancing and chanting with other people is like something that's programmed into us as being very tribal. Yeah. And it helps you to feel that sense of oneness and community and, and sense of belonging. But sometimes like I live across the street from the Greek Orthodox church and they have so many events, like they're always doing events and Sometimes I look at it with a little bit of longing, like, wow, those are people who are deeply steeped in community. And that seems like nice, something that I would like. So yeah, how do you how do you scratch the itch? Like how do you keep yourself feeling like a part of society? Yeah, I think it's the podcast. But yeah, I think for myself it's the podcast. I think trying to turn the podcast into real life relationships following the episode. So I make kind of a conscious effort now to host guests on the program and then do follow-ups, whether it be like a lunch, a dinner, but yeah, man, I think, I think I experience a lot of the loneliness other people do as well. Right. Like the fact that I work at like a very early stage company as well, the fact that it's just four of us in a lab every day, that's, pretty cool as well. Like we're kind of our own little cult in a way. Yeah. <laughs> Only totally. a few members. But uh yeah, like we all kind of believe that this thing will work. And, you know, the odds are I mean, just look at the data of startups. Like, you know, the odds are against us. But, you know, for some reason we're still doing it. So well that's a really tight knit community. I think it's a perfect example. And you have your your shared myth or your like narrative together of eventual right success based on your hard work and so yeah that makes a lot of sense to me um i would recommend i know this is going to sound absolutely insane but it's ultimately just a form of team building like i would recommend doing some of that shit with your co-workers like singing like dancing like it sounds so ridiculous but if it is indeed your one of your most like anchored grounded communities your work then I think it makes a lot of sense to treat it that way. I think for a lot of people, their work tries to be a community. Like so many company cultures try to like be a family and it mostly fails. It mostly is like a terrible pale imitation of family. 
But there's no reason it has to be that way. And in the context of a startup, I think you have more potential than almost any other working environment to have a real community. Yeah, I I think, well, I think on one hand, the lack of, I mean, everyone works quite a bit in Silicon Valley. So I guess the lack of like, you know, friendships outside the office has almost forced me to become more part of the group that is Feveret, the company I work for. Um, you know, that's not to suggest I, 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 I really do enjoy where I'm at, but yeah, to say that I've got a group of friends that I go out with on weekends, it's not true. Wouldn't be the case. Yeah. Well, you're also a recent transplant. I mean, there's mitigating factors, but this is part of how the modern world robs us of community is like, if you want to be serious about your job and go get money, like you got to be willing to move away from your family and likely because you live in the modern world, your family doesn't live with you to begin with. So, yeah. But I would say as well, I've been, I've gotten closer with my family through living. I feel like in some way, you know, the whole absence makes the heart grow fonder, whatever the term is. Like, I think that's kind of real in some sense. Like you want what you don't have and, you know, you had it at one point, so you cherish the stuff that you can recall and you want to build more moments. So I also I also feel like in some ways, even the family group is just like a pale imitation of the tribe. Like our family groups are awesome, but they're generally pretty small. Like if you if you think about what we were evolved to do, it's interact in a different way with a very closely knit group of people. I want to talk about one more thing and then we can get to some of the stuff that you're doing now. Cause I think it's very interesting as well. Um, if, okay. if there's anything else you want to touch on by all means, like please bring it up, but politics in the workplace is one thing that I wanted to talk to you as well, because okay. you, you kind of hinted at it there. Like we're bringing all of our values, all of our virtues, all of our ethics to work and work might not be a place where we can get all of these fulfilling things from like we might, might not be able to have a family at work. We might be able to have a team, like a soccer team or an NFL team, but at the end of the day, you know, people get traded. People people leave the team, right? Yeah. You're stuck with your family. You're stuck with your tribe. Like there is no leaving and venturing out into the desert or the jungle to find a new tribe. You know, you're stuck with them. What's your kind of take on where kind of work culture is today? Well, yeah, I think that like, that is a major sort of limiter on your ability to be in community with your work people. And also the fact that it doesn't serve you to actually be totally honest with the people that you work with. You know, like there's an element of having to put up a facade, like a version of you that is most productive and useful to the company. That in doing that, you betray your ability to be totally yourself in that setting. So I feel like, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all a pale imitation of what we're searching for, which is why people are so desperate to grasp at these crazy stories they hear. And like one thing I really enjoy is watching content where people go into fringe groups and attend rallies and protests and stuff, because those are scenarios where community is really strong. Like people are gathered around a, a single objective and they really have an implicit trust and care for the other people there. Yeah. You can just tell that people are 
are grasping for this kind of stuff because they're not getting it elsewhere. I, I can't remember the way you exactly phrased it, but when we when we ate at that Indian restaurant in Vancouver, this was maybe a year ago now, you were talking about how, like you just said here, the bottom line is always to create more with less. Peter Thiel even used that framing. He's like, technology is doing more with less. And I think you're right. On, on some level, it is like it not suggest that we ever had a perfect world to begin with, but it has kind of corrupted our ability to connect with people to a large extent. Yeah. And at the, that, that's the cost. The benefit is that we have this new ability to affect things more and support more human beings to live and flourish. Where like that, a value that I closely tie to exploration is um, like propagation of the human species. I think that it is, in my eyes, everyone's responsibility to encourage the world to help as many people as possible to live over the course of a long time. So that's to say that like, it wouldn't be good to just triple the population right now because that would really undermine our ability to continue to grow. But if we look at the long term of like, you know, millions of years, how can we position ourselves so that the most humans can live? I think that's a good thing. I think more humans living is a good thing. And that when people get the chance to experience life, that that has value in and of itself. Where I go with that is kind of space exploration and colonization. But that's a that's a whole nother subject. Oh, do you have any opinions on Elon? With all the stuff he's been up to lately? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? It's obligatory. <laughs> um, but I have much stronger opinions on space more abstractly. I'm glad that he is he's causing people to talk about space colonization, which I think is a great thing. I, I truly think it's our only real viable future. Because I can't imagine a version of humanity that doesn't expand exponentially. Because every form of life on Earth, natural selection has just made it so that's our main thing is expanding. And so the only way to do that is to get more space to expand into. So I, I think that that's where we need to be focused is and also just sort of hedging our bets because things could happen that could destroy the planet, that could destroy the whole solar system. And I want as many humans as possible to live over the course of all time. So that means we should put some humans in other solar systems and other galaxies, or as far as we can get them, we should spread the seeds of humanity because that will allow for the most people to get to explore and live and have the potential to enjoy life and be happy and also suffer and create art and just flail, you know? All right. Well, let's talk about what you're up to now. What are you up to these days, right? <laughs> So I work at the Internet Archive. We've been talking for an hour and a half. Yeah, now we're finally <laughs> getting to the intro. All right. Hi, I'm so happy to be here on the Homeroom Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I work at the Internet Archive. I have this real estate thing cooking and uh, looking to purchase, manage, develop, um, flip, rehab real estate in Bellingham, Washington. I really like Bellingham. That's a whole nother rant for me. I really like Bellingham. So um, real estate, internet archive. I'm the president of the board of the Frank Foundation, uh, which is a nonprofit principally concerned with democratizing education. 
we will hopefully soon have a full free educational program. And the goal is eventually to be a free university. As it stands now, it's more about providing content. I'd invite any of you listening who are interested to check out nextgenu.org. Um, that is probably my my chief passion project, and you know one of my main charitable outlets in addition to the Internet Archive. But both the Internet Archive and the Frank Foundation have a shared goal of helping people to learn, and that fits with my moral of helping people to explore. And so I tend to sort of, as a rule, split my time between things that I feel are good for the world and things that I think are likely to be lucrative. Somewhere in between the two is my coaching practice. I do career coaching, um, chemical coaching, career consulting. That's what I'm, the branding I've come up with. And that looks like, you know, having conversations not totally unlike this one. As I mentioned to you, I actually brought up some of the stuff I like to talk about in our my first session in this conversation. Um, but the I sort of think of it as like a, a therapist for your career. Like what I really get out of therapy is to have a friend who does not require you to listen to any of their problems. Like it's a one-sided relationship. And I think that's what I try to provide as a coach is like, look, we can have a conversation that is all about you and your needs, and I'm going to provide my advice and you're not going to have to listen to anything from me. That's what you pay me for. And so like, I think it's a little bit more informal than most people would define their practices. And that's not to say I don't have a structure. I have a structure. I have curriculum you can do depending on your needs. If you want to do like a career change or something. There's homework I can give you and stuff, but more to just sort of demystify the idea of therapy or coaching or whatever, because it really ultimately is just a conversation. And so what you're paying is to talk to someone who's a good conversationalist and who is going to be able to provide you with advice and not to have to have that be a two-way street, because we all can get some type of therapy, some form of affirmation and feedback from our friends. But First of all, they're biased, sometimes extremely so, sometimes just by virtue of who they are. But second of all, they then expect you to do the same for them, which is what friendship is. And so that's what you can kind of get by paying someone is not to have it be reciprocal. It doesn't have to be a two-way street. So yeah, that's kind of like the, the thing I'd say is most in the middle. I still do a little bit of consulting on the cannabis side, though I haven't for a little while. Um, but uh, that was kind of my prior business was CBD skincare and more broadly alternative cannabinoids. So that's still an interest of mine. And um, I like to always be cultivating new stuff. So I have like four or five other things that are in infancy stage that I, I won't share here today, but I'm happy to be doing a bunch of things and only having a few of them pan out. That's fine by me. It's more interesting than doing one thing. So yeah, that's kind of like a little high level of um, how I'm spending my time these days since uh, selling my business and moving back to Vancouver. No, I think that's awesome. You got to plant seeds and just see which ones grow. And I mean, the philosophy of balancing doing good with, you know, the necessary monetizing strategy of another venture like was that always a balance you were aiming to achieve is that something you were always conscious of 
my mom was always adamant about a desire to improve the world and really work to instill that in me. And so, yeah, I think it's always been part of my objective. But what really sort of made me pursue this was going through this process of defining my own virtues and own moral, like sort of pedestals, and then aligning the work I'm doing with those things. So in other words, I feel like there was an inauthenticness to my charity work as a kid, because it was very much like sort of out of obligation and at the insistence of my parents and particularly my mom. And still, I, and to be frank, as a stupid pun, the Frank Foundation is a family foundation. My mom's Erica Frank. I'm Ridge Frank White. So um, she's still a part of those charitable undertakings. But that I've sort of recontextualized it more as being um, a part of my goals in that I get to help people to explore and learn. And then I think that helps the world to achieve what I want it to achieve, which is to understand more. Because like, as much as I'm not a scientist, um, I really do enjoy science and I, I try to stay up with new discoveries. I think that it's, it's fascinating that as a species, we do so much to try to understand our world. And I love to be party to that and to create a society where more of that happens. We discover more and explore more. I mean, what, what has kind of been, in your opinion, what has been a breakthrough that you think has been super important in the last few years? Like what has been, what has been something that's happened to you that's turned you into an inspiration junkie where you're just <laughs> like, this is so cool. It could be like space exploration. The idea, like someone like Elon wants to go to Mars. That, well, that I think space, not to say that nothing's happened, but that we're, it's not like we've not done a ton in recent years to enthrall me. I think the area of scientific exploration that is most sort of like interesting to me right now is uh, small particles. And the fact that we, we continually find smaller and smaller building blocks of life, because I, it's just such an interesting thing to like try to figure out like what is the fundamental nature of the world and I really don't even want to speak on it much beyond that because I'm so ill-informed when it comes to quantum. Science. I think I've made myself look like a fool quite a few times. <laughs> speaking, so uh, yeah, feel free to feel free to dive in. But yeah, like I was going to say quantum computing. Absolutely. I think, um, and this is a somewhat stolen idea from a, a science fiction series. I really love called the three body problem. But I think the human brain is a quantum computer. I think we're doing some processing on a quantum level that we're just like an MRI couldn't pick that up. And there's no way to, to image a brain for quantum effects. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily know if it was happening. I really I firmly believe that it's happening. I think that that's part of at least what we need to make like a true AI is an AI that runs on a quantum computer because I think that there's maybe quantum entanglement. I don't, I don't even know which quantum effect, but I just believe that there is things happening on that level of size on the quantum, at the quantum scale, at the quantum scale in our brains. Um, and so, yeah, I think that quantum computing is 100% 
going to be a part of what brings us to the next stage of technology and the next stage of human development. It, it, it's shocking because someone shared a stat with me over the weekend. I'm not, I, I haven't fact checked it, but he was telling me that the brain uses as much energy as a dishwasher. What? Like wattage wise, wattage wise. And he, he was talking about in the context, like if you, if you look at a platform like chat GPT, for example, it's incredible what it can do, but the amount of like power and energy that actually takes to fulfill one inquiry is obscenely high. Really? Like Sam Altman, Sam Altman has used the term eye-watering to describe how much energy it takes. To, to answer one prompt? Yes, exactly. It's interesting too, because it's a specialized algorithm, right? Like our brain is inherently inefficient at talking because it has to do like 9 million other things. Chat GPT, all it does is determine statistically what word is likely to come next. And even then it's much less efficient. So that's really interesting because like we have all these inefficiencies baked in. We have to keep our whole body running and make sure our heart beats and we have to translate uh, whatever our inherent thoughts are into words and activate our vocal cords. Like for us to make speech is like, you know, there's a hundred tasks that have to happen that underlie that ability. Whereas for chat GPT, all it does is write. And even then it's less efficient. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, chat GPT can't pack your suitcase, right? Like it can only do, it can only do one thing. Granted, it does that one thing super, super well, but it still can only do one thing. That's the other thing about scientific progress. You might as well want it. It's going to happen anyway. <laughs> like you can torture yourself by being like, oh, I don't like this. Or what are the implications? Sure, but it's going to happen. So you might as well tell yourself a story about being excited for it. Okay, but I put words in your belt there. Uh, like what, what is kind of a phenomenon that's really intriguing you? these days well i think that was where i was gonna go and not just quantum computing but also like you know what's happening in particle accelerators and stuff and our need to continually build bigger ones to see smaller and smaller particles and you know i don't think that there is an answer at least not one that human brains can comprehend about the nature of life but every time we peel back a layer there's like a tingle in my spine. You know what I mean? Like you hear about this stuff and it doesn't change your life at all, but it also just is the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. It's a blip of excitement. Yeah. And, and a really profound excitement that like allows you to feel like you understand things more, even if it doesn't mm -hmm. actually change anything for you. It's not like understanding the fundamental building blocks of matter allows us to then manifest into being anything we want or manipulate them in any way, even at a scientific level. But I'm talking more about the individual. Like it's not like an understanding of physics allows you to then control physics, but it um it helps you to feel grounded and you know I don't know helps with derealization, depersonalization for me, and helps with anxiety. Just understanding things is such a strong tool for combating anxiety. All right. I mean, we've been talking for a long time. I've loved this. Is there anything you want to talk about? Um, well, we've been going for so long that I feel like we probably should just call it soon. Okay. <laughs> but I am I am eager to do 
uh, a coaching sesh, either with you on the air or just privately, the two of us, I think that there could be a lot of benefit for a listener who is, you know, grappling with career questions, as I would imagine most of your listeners are. They're people who take their careers seriously and also are always looking to innovate. Um, so I think that that could be interesting and I'd be happy to do it now. Maybe it ends up getting cut into two episodes or something, but yeah. Yeah, we should, we can definitely do it. Okay. We're going to do coaching. Cool. Let's go. So I got into career coaching as the result of going through a career design process. And that process looked like me basically starting from scratch, evaluating my strengths, what I desire out of life, and then kind of like trying to construct a career from there. And what I discovered was that I really enjoy talking to people. Like I said, I really value exploration. I really like teaching and learning through conversation and that I really like helping people and specifically like helping them to maximize their own utility in the world. And so that landed me with career coaching, which is I think kind of ironic to go through a career design fellowship and decide to be a career coach because a career design fellowship kind of is a form of coaching. I sort of did have a coach at the time. Nevertheless, that's how it happened. That's the truth. So <laughs> that's what I'm saying here. Um, Another element that is relevant to how I landed on this was the idea of Ikigai. Is this something that you understand or have heard of before? Well, I, yeah, it's a Japanese term. It's like how to live your best life or something like that. Yeah, totally. It's a very generic and romantic platitude. As most coaching things are in the best way, honestly, like something that has really become apparent to me in being a coach and in just thinking about the world through the lens of coaching is that the truest things are also the most generic and stupid sounding. And it's because they are true that they are generic. Like people say them over and over again. Because they are so generic, at least for me, it's very hard to derive benefit from them because it's like, I don't know, I'm kind of a cynic and it just feels annoying and gross when someone says something like live your best life. And so what I kind of realized is that like how you really get benefit from those generic platitudes is by internalizing them. And then once you've lived them, then all of a sudden they're super profound. They go from generic to super profound. I think. A great example of this is like the classic hippieism, everything is vibrations. It's true in some level, like you can reduce pretty much anything to a waveform mathematically. We see our voices as waveforms right here. But then, of course, the light also in the room can be a waveform, the matter in our bodies, etc. You can even look at the whole universe as one waveform. So... It is true, but also it sounds really dumb. Everything is vibrations. But then you take too much LSD and you live that experience. Everything is vibrations. And afterwards, you're like, holy shit, everything is vibrations. And then you're the annoying person saying it over and over again. 
that's like a funny, you know, like stereotypical example, but it's true of many other things too. Like it's helpful to talk it out or like there is no answer. All you can do is accept. These are things that are frustrating until you've lived them and then are extremely helpful. And so at the core of my coaching practice is to encourage people to seriously examine the facts of their life and internalize the platitudes that are helpful. In other words, finding a brand of bullshit that works for you is integral to career success. So I like to start out by kind of asking, well, first of all, by thanking people for coming, but I kind of feel like I don't have to thank you because we're already two hours (laughs) into this conversation and we've talked about it for a year. And also, I know you want to be here, but I'm still going to say it because I'm such a nice guy. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. It is a leap of faith to have agreed to let me do this, especially in this setting where like other people are going to see it. That one rings especially true here. I normally would not recommend people be coached publicly. And so we'll, I won't push you as hard as I might push someone who is not being listened to. Oh, come to. on. Push me, Ridge. I can handle it. Okay. It's a leap of faith to ask for help and to engage seriously in coaching or therapy or any type of help. I want to ask, have you ever done anything like this before? Co- Coaching-wise, No. I mean, I've had mentors in my life, but I've never sat down for a formal coaching session. No. What about more broadly, like therapy or counseling? Like I've, I've been to a therapist maybe a couple times, but again, it was kind of just because the, the family thought it was a good idea sort of thing, but uh, not really. No. Makes sense. Um, I find most people who are doing coaching are in the same boat as you because coaching is kind of the least scary version of this sort of talking things out with a professional. And it's the most limited in scope. Like our scope is limited to your work and your career. That makes for an easier release of ego because you're not releasing your ego of your whole life. You're just allowing someone in, in this one area know that this is a normal way to approach these sorts of things. And that if anything, you're likely to derive more benefit from it than someone who has been through this sort of stuff before. I expect to live in Atherton by the end of this call. (laughs) I got you. Don't (laughs) worry. You'll have doubled your salary by the time we're done. Do you have any preconceptions of what it means to do career coaching? Mm, I don't think so. Maybe maybe the basic ones of how can I make more money? How can I be more fulfilled at work? But again, pretty primitive stuff. That's cool. Most people have negative preconceptions because the industry as a whole is full of snake oil salesmen and people who are just selling their coaching programs in like a book form or whatever. Like it's kind of full of shysters. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. In part because there's no, like I just decided to be a career coach. You can do certification programs. None of them are all that serious. And there's nothing that's required to call yourself a career coach. So that leads to a lot of people kind of like just deciding to do it and a huge variety in their success and ability to actually help people. So it's good. You have no negative preconceptions. I normally wouldn't voice all these negative things about coaching, but we're on a podcast. So I'm trying to be a little more holistic in my approach rather than having it be 
task focused in the way that I might do normally. I'm early in doing this. And so the majority of people I've talked to are people I knew prior to the coaching session helps so much to have that implicit trust and understanding and also allows us to skip a huge amount of intro where I just learned the basic facts of your life. Overall, our goal here, my goal as your coach, is going to be to reduce cognitive dissonance or in other words, hypocrisy. Uh, Reduce hypocrisy because it hurts and is detrimental and instead enable integrity. That's sort of the alternative as I like to put it. We can dive into the semantics of the definitions of the words, but that's how I'm gonna, the dissonance, hypocrisy to integrity scale is how we're gonna kind of conceptualize things in this conversation. And I think the utility of that is, is inherent and somewhat obvious, but if you have any questions, I'm happy to talk about it for a second. So I sort of see two ways to accomplish this goal. You can change your morals, as in you can change the thing that you believe that you're not acting in accordance with, because that is dissonance or hypocrisy. When you believe something, but you act in a way that is the opposite or um, that in some way contradicts that belief. Or you can change your actions so that your actions now conform with your morals. So again, pretty basic, like you have two options for reducing hypocrisy. You can obviously also change both, but in general, easier to just do one. What I want to ask to kind of start to build a map of your morals is the question that I answered really early in this podcast about explaining how I really value exploration. Normally, I try not to lead into this beforehand because it gives a certain um, bias when people have already heard my answer to the question, it's happened. So now we're going to have to deal with it. What do you want most for the world? And what do you want most for yourself? What morals do you pedestalize? What aspects of humanity, what traits do you think are important and worth furthering? Becoming an inspiration junkie. I think it would serve everyone well to become an inspiration junkie. And I think part of my fascination with like knowledge and wanting people to get excited about learning new things is that like I was not a very smart kid growing up. So as a result, I felt kind of dumb and I was afraid to ask questions. And now that I'm in a place like Silicon Valley, and again, Silicon Valley is not perfect. People hold things very close to their chest, far more than you would think. But there is this overwhelming optimism that anything is possible. And I want people to think that they can accomplish anything. Like, that's what I want for the world. Now, does that mean being a, nar- a narcissist, an egomaniac? Uh, maybe. At the same time, like, I don't know. I feel like you can be a good person and, like, really do things that can matter for the world. That's a bit of a convoluted answer. No, not at all. I am going to try to distill it, though. Sure. I think that this. I had to, to, I had to talk it out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. The answer to this question is necessarily like a diatribe on your own personal beliefs. There is no short answer. And I think you gave a very concise one, all things considered. But to distill it even more. So the, you pedestalize inspiration, being inspired, also inspiring others. Is that something that you you think is important for humans to try to do? 
Yeah. I mean, like, for example, I would never want to be Elon Musk, but I get a lot of inspiration from him. Yeah. So ambition maybe is another word that could be applicable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, ambitious can be ta- ambition can be taken out of context as well. Like, because how much are you willing to be ambitious about one thing in exchange for another thing? But, but in general, when you see someone really getting after it and, and chasing their dreams, that's something you admire. Yeah, it's a, it's infectious. It's inspiring. You want to do the same thing. I think that's really it. First of all, that's that's very different from mine in a good way. Like, I don't think in, you're in any way copying me and. It's very authentic to you and everything I know about you that you would answer with that answer. Um, And also, I think it's a great one. It's really interesting and fun. I like inspiration. Who doesn't? So great. And then the second thing, thankfully, I haven't answered yet, though I will give you my answer after I hear yours. What do you enjoy most? What do you enjoy doing most? I think learning people's stories because everyone has a story, right? And Some people might have more interesting stories than others, right? And some people might have the same story. But yeah, to our earlier point about politics, studying the world, studying how governments, tribes, people in general form groups, why do we behave in certain ways? I feel like all of that is just getting to know people and getting to know different people in history, whether they're alive or dead. So, yeah. So... You kind of answered it a bit, but I want to ask, what do you, like, how do you enjoy getting to know people through reading, through conversation, through, you know, osmosis, learning about historical events and learning about the people who are involved? Like, what is your, what is your favorite way to go about learning about people? I love the conversations that just go off the beaten path where I'm like, wow, I would have never known that about you. Oh, no. I feel like we're in a world where, especially with social media, we're trying to present our best self all the time. So, yeah, it's refreshing to, like, let your guard down, have some good food, maybe get a drink with someone and just kind of see who they actually are. That It's funny because this one I didn't, uh, like, prompt you at all for or prejudice you by hearing my answer. But you you almost did give exactly my answer. And it's why we're both here doing this right now is because we both really enjoy learning through conversation about people, teaching and being taught by people that we find interesting and whose company we enjoy. And it's the core of why I started my coaching practice and also why you started this podcast. So um, it makes sense. And yeah, yeah, that's my answer. I think the way I give it is learning through conversation. Yeah. Um, Exactly. That's a great way to distill it. Now that we have these two things, we have a basis by which to rank or contextualize your career and the choices you've made and your current position because we have a sense of your goalposts, of what you enjoy and what you like. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a little bit of context for why we're starting at such a high level. So tell us about how your current job aligns with uh, these morals and enjoyment, things that you find that you enjoy. And the way that I phrase it here is what do you pedestalize and what do you enjoy? Yeah, for sure. So I think I pedestalize like the learning part of it. And I think one of the reasons I'm... 
your main mm-hmm. pedestalized trait of being an inspiration junkie obviously directly ties to this work in a Silicon Valley startup. Like you said, this is a place yeah. full of inspiration that you live in. Yeah, exactly. Like what I am passionate about is seeing how much stress, you know, the f- the founder, Reza, goes through every day. All the bullshit they has to put up with. All the mistakes that I make as an employee. All of those things are like super inspiring. And one of my jobs, I have, I have many jobs at the company, given that we're so early stage, you know, mul- multiple hats. but one part of my job is very creative. Like it's, it's handling the marketing at the company. So I think what's cool in that way is yes, I'm not, you know, a hundred percent, you know, in love with data centers, but data centers are pretty darn important. Like we wouldn't be able to have this call right now without a data center. And I can appreciate how integral it is going back to the learning aspect. I want to educate people on, Hey, you know, you might not be passionate about this stuff, but we need this shit. Like we really need this stuff. Like it is super important. Like any digital task we do today is because of data centers. And again, do I care about the wattage per square foot of the facility and its overall PUE? Not really, but I know that at the end of the day, like this, this is an important sector and it's cool that I get to be a part of it. I get to be part of something bigger than myself. So I guess that's where I draw the inspiration from for this role. Makes sense. I think 8 out of 10 is maybe better than anyone else I've talked to. I think the uh, maybe the kindergarten principal was more satisfied than you. I, I normally don't ask people for a number like you gave that without prompting. But if I had to distill the answers I've gotten into a number... No, no one else is there. So you should be very happy with that. That's fucking awesome. You do not need a career change. Almost everyone I talk to is at least flirting with the idea of a career change. In no small part because they've come to me looking for career help. Whereas I came to you being like, this might be a fun thing to do on the podcast. So you're not in the same boat as someone who's like seeking me out. However, still, most people are nowhere near that satisfied. So I think I, I say all that to you to encourage gratitude because I think that um, that's fucking awesome and that you deserve to be happy and grateful with that situation because it is extremely rare. Um, well, I mean, le- let me caveat it because there are days where I feel like it's a five out of 10, but I, I will say in the grand scheme of things, the fact that I'm down in the Valley, the fact that I'm surrounded with all these people that, I mean, dude, I'm the only person without a PhD on my team. I would have never dreamt of that in grade 11 chemistry class. Again, it's it's inspiring to me. And again, do I, I don't know, I'm kind of fretting on this, but like I, you know, I've asked myself the hard question of like, would I want to stay in this industry forever? No, but I would love to stay at an early stage startup with the camaraderie that I have and the bonds that I'm developing with the team. I would take that any day of the week. That That's what I'm saying. That's like, um, that sort of clear sense of purpose and understanding of what you enjoy about your job is so valuable and and awesome and something that you can really take pride in having um, because it is is far from the norm. So I feel like because of that, there is less of a need than I normally have to talk with you about kind of what your goals are for 
um, the, the future and to talk about the path that led you here. But I think that there is still utility in asking the classic questions. You just said you don't see yourself in this industry forever. What does that mean? Where is your, like, you asked me earlier, if you if I was the mayor of Vancouver, what would I do? If um, Fervorette works out to a point where you don't need to worry about money, what do you do? One of the, my long-term goal is to get enough experience at early stage companies to understand how they actually work. I would probably just use the money to invest in other like early stage tech companies, to be honest. That's awesome. Also, I think um, it's probably losing some meaning for you now because I've already said it. But again, this is an area in which you are an outlier. Most people do not feel on track for their goals, even people who are. So again, it's something to practice gratitude around. And yeah, I understand the sort of um, impact of that statement is only cheapened every time I say it, but it is still true. So it's worth saying. And as much as it's possible for you to internalize, it's worth internalizing. So I think it's clear to me that at least around your career and your current job, you have a lot of integrity and that you're not slogging through something for the sake of some future ideal state that you are more or less aligned in your goals and your actions. You still have the opportunity, though, to change those morals or to change your actions. There's less necessity, and in fact, it can be detrimental, but it's still worth discussing. Do you feel as though, like, When you said this stuff around inspiration out loud, how does that make you feel? Like when you hear from yourself that you value inspiration, is that something that um, genuine? Does it feel good? Does it feel awkward or cringe? Like, how does it make you feel? No, I, I think it is like the most honest thing about me. Like I'm a total inspiration junkie. Like, for example, one thing I struggle with is like, I, I want to do financially well in life. All the jobs that are the most financially lucrative, though, I don't really like. Like, I don't really enjoy. Like, I tried being a lawyer. I really didn't like studying for the LSAT. Like, I tried doing investment banking. I didn't like a financial analyst internship. So, yeah, I got to figure that part out still. <laughs> well, I mean, you're doing the the lottery path of life where it could go really good or you could struggle all the way into your grave. Yeah, exactly. But it seems like as we talked about at the very beginning of this episode, you're going to struggle either way. Even if you succeed in all your current goals, you're going to find new goals to strive to not only because that's how we're biologically set up, but that's because how it's how you're set up psychologically is to find things to strive towards. And so If you're enjoying that process of striving and struggling, you're doing the right thing. And even if it means that you have to struggle for longer than if you deferred your enjoyment and did something you hate for 20 years so you could retire, you'll still have made the right decision. I think think you touched on something there that's really important, enjoying the struggling process, because that's literally what building a company is about. Again, I'm only so close to the action. Again, I'm to suggest that I'm the one, you know, that's staying up till 4 a.m. every night worrying about our burn rate. It's not true, right? Well, 
I mean, even if you were that person, if you were able to maintain your current mindset, you could enjoy that process because it's not required to enjoy it to succeed, but it's definitely recommended. You know, like you can go your whole life um, without enjoying your successes or even more specifically enjoying only your successes and never enjoying the process that takes you there. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and it's tough, especially in an, again, the Bay area is very much an echo chamber. Like everyone focuses on tech. I mean, it's very hard not to compare yourself down here. I I think I'm lucky in the sense that like, I just don't have many friends (laughs) down here. So I don't have many people to compare myself to, but I feel like there's, man, there's like a lot of people down here that their whole social circle is from their Stanford days. Yeah. It's all very aspirational, their whole social circle. Yeah. Like they haven't built a billion dollar company yet. Therefore, like they're, they're a loser. They're a loser. <laughs> it's so relentlessly optimistic for you to say that you're lucky that you don't have any friends. I could not help but laugh. Like, I think, um, I think being opti- like being, yeah, I think that's, that's one of your greatest gifts, man, is, uh, is that relentless optimism. And yeah, that's awesome. I'm, yeah. I'm so optimistic. I'm but, happy uh, I don't have any friends down here. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. You found, you found a narrative, you found a spin, a story to tell yourself around like the fact that you just moved somewhere and you haven't established a social network yet to spin it into a positive. And I think that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> Granted, I do have some friends for people listening, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Kath has so many friends, guys. He's just saying this to be inspired. You know, I would not host a bump and party if I uh, invited all my friends. So on either side of his camera right now, there's just scores of friends. <laughs> you just can't see them. Out of the frame. <laughs> Actually, all his friends are in, in Canada where you won't be able to find them because it's Canada. Um, Okay. No, I truly all joking aside, I think that that's a really valuable skill. And I also think that you are because of that destined to have a great group of friends in Silicon Valley because other people are going to recognize you know that and your many other allures as a human being. So, if I man, if I could ask like damn, are people that down and out like on their careers? That kind of sucks. Bro, people are just miserable. Like most people are not very happy. <laughs> like that's just the reality of life. It's hard to be, it takes work. You have to, on top of all the other work that you have to do to do your job, make your food, take care of your mammals that rely on you. You also then have to do work to be happy every day. And most people just don't have the bandwidth. And also like generally jobs are obligations and burdens for a huge majority of the human race. Only a tiny fraction of people are able to do what you do and find and create inspiration. And I think that's something I wanted to highlight here too. And I don't know why. I guess it's just because you're killing it. I don't have, I've had zero things to hold you accountable on. This has just been a fully positive, uh, like, yeah. So another thing I wanted to draw attention to is that you are doing your inspiration thing on both ends. You're being inspired constantly through your reading and your faithful dedication to following the Silicon Valley scene. But you're also creating inspiration through this podcast and through talking to people who you admire and allowing others to share in those interactions. Um, 
I'm going to really work to find something negative to say. So just brace <laughs> yourself because it'll be awful once I think of it. <laughs> no, man. I mean, I think it was because that I was bummed out for so long. Like I was really depressed, really didn't know what I wanted to do for so long. And then, yeah, I guess I, to, to your point, like I, I found my, I found my bullshit story. So yeah, I mean, I, I, w- I was very lucky to, yeah, just have people on my team that didn't really give up on me and yeah, they helped me to where I am now. And there's still, in my opinion, the best is yet to come. So yeah. The biggest difference is the ability to tell a story that benefits you and the world and then live it, which you are doing. So something that we have talked about, though, because our not all of our conversations have been so relentlessly optimistic, and you've told me about some of those past struggles, and I'm sure some of them still follow you. Like you said, you have bad days, you're a human being. So a, um, a sort of strategy or uh, another story to tell yourself that could be helpful is uh, to understand the dichotomy between presence and self-reflection. So this is really integral to how I conceive of the world and how I try to teach others to. The idea being that we have sort of two ways of experiencing life, and these get discussed in many different ways. They get discussed in the way I just made up, presence versus self-reflection. Another really popular sort of frame for thinking about this is in your narrative self versus your experiential self. Is this something that you're familiar with at all? I could take a guess, but no. So your narrative self is the story of yourself that you tell yourself and your conception of your own memories of the past. Your experiential self is your lived experience, the moment that you are in right now and what that entails. So the feeling of your chair and your headphones and your jacket and the sound of my voice in your ear and all those things that only exist in this moment and that are fleeting. Both frames of reference can occupy our entire mental space. You can be totally subsumed by a memory, lying lying in bed at night thinking about some dumb shit you did that you regret and that was awkward you're not thinking about the feeling of the sheets on your body or how full you are from dinner or the nice breeze coming in through the window. You're fully in this realm of experiencing your memory. Just the same as you're on a motorcycle driving up the PCH, no helmet, it's midnight, the air is whipping whipping through your hair. You're totally in the moment. You are fully your experiential self. You have no room for anything other than the next turn, what you can see from your headlights, and what your senses are telling you. Does that make sense as a distinction? Yep. Yep, it does. The final way I'll put it is um, the most scientific, the most neurologically based, which is working memory versus like short-term memory. Or in other words, so working memory is sort of a type of short-term memory. We also have our like long-term memory, essentially a different way of saying your narrative self. Working memory essentially bridges that gap. So I, I kind of got ahead of myself there. The, the more clear distinction is between long and short-term memory as being the same as between narrative and experiential or 
presence, and self-reflection. So then to take it back to presence and self-reflection, you can live entirely in one realm or the other, either totally overwhelmed by your current moment or totally overwhelmed by some story you're telling yourself. But generally, we live in transition between the two. A memory sparks something that makes us feel differently about the thing that we're doing, or a feeling sparks a memory, a smell, a taste, a touch sparks a memory, and you live somewhere in between the two, experiencing a mix of what's happening in the moment and the context of your past. Does that make sense? I'm trying to remember all the definitions, but yes, it does for the most part. Yeah. So let, let's let's rehash one more time because it's complicated. And that's why I give three different definitions of the same thing. It's because it's really like confusing, honestly. You have your lived experience, your moment, and then you have the story that you tell. And so normally you're living a mix of those two things. You're not just doing one or the other. But sometimes you're totally in one state or the other. Either one can be overwhelming. I find most often that I end up in a bad headspace because of an overwhelming either presence or an overwhelming self-reflection. So in other words, pain is a great example of an overwhelming moment. You don't really remember pain. You are consciously aware of when you hurt yourself that it hurt. As in like physical pain? Physical pain. Exactly. Exactly. Physical pain. Sorry. That's an important distinction. Not emotional pain, physical pain. You can remember that something hurt, but your only real memory of pain is the lasting vestiges of pain. So like if you hurt yourself badly, you'll have a continuing ache, maybe for the rest of your life. And that will be your memory of that pain. So in that moment where you are feeling pain, it is solely the moment the experiential self, the short-term memory that is plaguing you. But as a human being living in transition between presence and self-reflection, you have the ability to tell a story and to live that story instead of living your moment, to create a narrative about what's happened to you that's different from, oh my God, my leg hurts so much, and have that influence your lived experience. You can draw from your self-reflection to affect the present moment. And that's the more obvious example and is, is something that we're all aware of, right? That people who have really good mental control, they can weather a storm or a blizzard, or they can experience an intense physical pain, like a stabbing sensation or something, and appear more or less unaffected by it. Like that's something that we all can conceive of. It's like someone who's stoic can do that. The other one is a bit more conceptual, that when you're telling yourself a story of how you failed or how you're lesser or how you're depressed, anxious, angry, sad, embarrassed, greedy, jealous, when you are subsumed by a narrative that you're telling yourself about something that you did wrong or something you don't like about yourself, that you can use the present moment your lived experience to draw yourself out of that experience as well. And so that one looked a little bit more like meditation, like a focus on one's breathing or maybe even just the feeling of fabric on your clothes, the look of a color. Those things can draw you out of negative self 
like perpetuating thoughts about how you're bad. And so in thinking about the world through this lens, you gain the ability to switch between the negative experience of one extreme to the neutral experience of the other that you weren't focused on at that moment. And in doing so, you can alleviate a lot of your most acute suffering and you can stop things like obsessing over pain or obsessing over a mistake. And so this frame to me is one that gives you even more agency to design your own reality and to focus on what is beneficial to you rather than what your subconscious may be drawing you towards. That makes total sense. I do that all the time. I brought up music a little bit earlier. Music is meditative for me. Like sometimes I'll be having a really shitty day and I'll just listen to Boston is a band I love. So whenever I listen to Boston's music, I'm just like, ah, you know what? My life's not that bad. It's not that shitty. <laughs> so, Yeah, it brings you back to being present. It's, it um, grounds you in your short-term memory. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So 100%. Essentially what you can do with practice is get rid of the specific prompt of Boston or like your specific coping mechanism and just know that like, because you know that Boston can totally change the way that you're thinking and feeling because you're aware that you have the power to do that. You can manifest it even without the music and you can do it right in that moment without having to disengage and take a walk or whatever. And so the more you flex that muscle, the more you'll be able to, to do that, essentially. But yeah, it sounds like it's a coping mechanism you're already familiar with. This is where the ridge the teacher comes in. How do you flex that muscle? Because uh, I still, still have not mastered that. No, I, I, think it's, I think it's very much the opposite. Like you do less, you do more with less. And you're granted, but because you have already the self-reflection, the ability to know that you can change how you're thinking and what you're feeling. You've taken the first step towards being able to do it on command. And what I would urge you to do is pay close attention to essentially your state of agitation. And when you reach a point of being overwhelmed, identify whether it is a physical sensation, something in the moment that's overwhelming you, or a story that you're telling yourself that's overwhelming you, identify it as one or the other, and then employ the opposite to distract yourself. The examples that I gave before are maybe not super relevant because you may not see yourself in that situation of being in great physical pain and or being in a state where you're kind of like beating yourself up. But I, I would say that those things definitely do happen. And often they're just more mild than what we're describing. So like when you walk out into a rainstorm, quite often my first reaction is to kind of hunker down. My body becomes tight. And pretty much all I'm thinking about is the weather. The weather is intense. It's blowing in my face. I'm getting wet. It's overwhelming. There's not a lot of room for another experience there. And the experience that I'm feeling is bad. So it's an opportunity, therefore, to look to a narrative you could tell yourself about the experience, about how it's interesting. Maybe your hair is being whipped around in a dramatic way that you think is kind of funny when you think about it. Or maybe you just think about how 
you were the last storm you were in, you were in Hawaii and you were in a really good mood and you just didn't care. It was warm enough to where you was fine and you just relaxed. And then you realize you can have that same attitude, even though it's colder and you're not on vacation. To give another example of the sort of mental thing, let's say you make a mistake at work and your boss is upset, but not that upset because like you said, he's a good boss. And so he doesn't want to make you feel bad, but you're doing a good enough job making yourself feel bad. And it's all you can think about when you're headed home that day is like how you fucked up and what you could do to avoid it. Maybe instead of thinking solely about your work, you can think about how the sun feels on your skin or how your cat feels, how soft it is, or um, the taste of the mint in your mouth or whatever. Anything to draw you back into your present reality because that will detract from the overwhelmingness of the narrative that you're telling. And this is one of the most classic things. Like I went to somatic therapy recently, which is all about this, like identifying the feeling in your body and then just trying to change it. I was so dubious. I was like, this guy's a complete fucking crackpot who I was getting therapy from. But then I just was like, you know what? I paid to be here. I'm listening to him. I should just try. And I did. And I was like, wow, it really, really works super duper well if you just try actually like earnestly and hard. And so this is an example of something where I'm sure to you, this sounds at least partially like a generic platitude, but this is one of those platitudes where if you can live it, it will become real and it can provide great value to your life and your ability to enjoy your day-to-day existence. Yeah, man, hundred percent. And to your point, I think it is easier said than done. I think a lot of the generic platitudes, they're generic for a reason, right? They are. It is actually good advice. So, And it's difficult in no small part because it sounds so stupid and because it's so easy for your ego defenses to come up and to just reject the advice. Be like, they don't know me. Like, that's not going to work. Like, that sounds dumb. And I'm, I'm sure people listening to this are going to make that judgment, as I would in your shoes. There is a, I'm going to look right at the camera and say this. Break the fourth wall. There is a 100% chance that if I was listening to this, I'd be like, this guy is a conceited douchebag and he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. That's a legitimate reaction. I may be a conceited douchebag, but I would also urge you to at least like try a little bit to think about maybe whether this could work for you because you might be really surprised at how effective these extremely generic pieces of advice are and how much your life can improve from literally just thinking about things differently and telling yourself a different story. I, um, that's pretty much how I like to end my first session. So it's a good way to end this podcast as well. There's a quote that I specifically like to end on. Um, first a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson and then a quote from me. What you do speak so loudly, I cannot hear what you're saying. That's a Emerson quote, and it's one of my favorites. It's an awesome and very generic platitude that just hits home for me, works for me. I'd have that shit imported on a pillow for sure. Um, and then my quote is, your own narrative is just your perspective. The bigger story is how others see you based on how you act. So this is to reground all this advice in the fact that largely what's going to matter in terms of how people treat you 
is not these stories that you tell yourself. It's actually your actions. And I think it's important to acknowledge that after spending all this time on this extremely meta level of cognition being like, you can create any world for yourself just based on telling it. You can, and you can live in that world, but it will not change how other people see you. All that's going to change how other people see you is how you act. So that part is important. And the goal of all of this work in creating your own narrative is to be a more effective person and therefore act in a way that is going to benefit both yourself and others more and increase others' perceptions of you. So, yeah. Okay, so this concludes our conversation with Ridge Frank White. If you like this episode, be sure to give it a download as well as rating and review wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Cassius Felicella. Thanks for listening.